God's word in Psalm chapter 2. We have confessed that God is good and loving, but in the midst of the turmoil, division, grief, loss, apathy, pain, where is he? Hear now God's word from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Please be seated now, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise you as a good and loving Father. Your steadfast love endures forever. And so we praise you as the God who is near us, who loves us and who has shown us that love in the gospel of your Son. O Lord, you have drawn near to us, and we now draw near to you. We pray that as we look at your word together, that you would enliven our hearts. Lord, hearts that are all too often cold and apathetic, or filled with pride selfishness, filled with guilt and shame. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you that you reign in the person of your son, that you have installed him, your anointed, on Zion, and we come to you, to your holy mountain. And Lord, we ask for life. We ask for resurrection life in the midst of of the trouble and the brokenness all around us. Lord, we pray that you would bring us this life by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to be with you, to be back with you. I think this is my fourth time with you guys on a Sunday. My name, as Matt said at the beginning, my name is Daniel Schreiner. I'm one of the associate pastors at Henson Baptist Church in inner southeast Portland. Um, We so appreciate the partnership with you guys, Harvest Community Church, in the gospel, in kingdom work. Uh, I love your your pastor, Matt. I know Jordan well. Uh, Love these guys, and therefore, love you guys 
Uh, and our church, Henson, prays for you all often. We pray for the ministry of the gospel here among you and going out from you. Uh, so it's a, a real joy to be with you today. Just a, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm from, I grew up as a kid in Minnesota, and then we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where my parents still live um, when I was starting high school. And uh, I, was, I was living in Washington, D.C., and my parents I went to a little church in Pittsburgh uh, to visit, um, to visit some friends. My parents were actually speaking at the church for a little retreat. And I want to start there with the message this morning to tell you a little bit about myself, which leads into the sermon today. I wasn't going to email Ashley. I didn't want to. We had never met. Uh, she lived in Pittsburgh. As I said, I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, but my, by chance, my parents were visiting her little church in, in, there for the weekend, and my mom was impressed for good reason with this young woman that she met named Ashley, and she was very persistent in retrieving Ashley's email for me, for her eldest son. And then my mom begged me for weeks to email Ashley. She wore me down. I emailed Ashley. Stranger yet, Ashley emailed me back. And we've been married 12 years now. We have three kids, Sam, Iris, and Willa. And it's just funny to think about that had I never sent that email, or if Ashley wouldn't have responded, which all her friends were telling her, don't respond to a guy, you know, to a guy whose mom needs to go find a wife or a girlfriend for him. Ignore that email. But she responded anyways. And it's just funny to think that uh, had we not done that, had we not sent those emails, Sam, Iris, and Willa wouldn't be here today. If we zoom out from that just little story, it's kind of overwhelming to think how our lives could be different had it not been for maybe one small, seemingly insignificant decision at the time. Uh, not to mention the myriad of choices that we make every day and how our lives intersect with billions of others in unseen ways, uh, both who are living and those who have gone before us. So much of our life seems governed by dumb luck or chance. Well, this morning, we're going to consider God's providence in the story of Esther. If you've never read the book of Esther before, do yourself a favor. It is one of the most compelling and entertaining narratives, I think, in all of Scripture. Uh, to this day, Esther is read on the holiday of Purim, every year in synagogues across the nation, across the world. During the Holocaust in Auschwitz, Jews, suffering Jews wrote Esther from memory and read it aloud in Auschwitz under threat of death. And during untold suffering and loss, the people of God have looked to this little book and found hope. They have laughed and celebrated God's protection over them, even amid great sorrow. We are meant to laugh at this story. It's funny. We are meant to hope in the God who is never mentioned in this book. I'll be your storyteller today and tour guide of Esther at 30,000 feet. Uh, we're considering the entire book in one sermon. You know, may maybe one day Matt will do a multi-week sermon series 
through the book of Esther. Uh, but today, I don't want us to miss, miss the forest for the trees. So before you buckle up for our flyover of the book of Esther today, I have an invitation for you. Here's the invitation. Read the book of Esther on your own. Read it even this afternoon. Read it. If you have kids, read it to your kids. If you have grandkids, read it to them. That's my invitation. I also have a goal. I want you to laugh at how God turns the tables on evil for the deliverance of his people. I want you to laugh in faith at how God turns the tables on evil for the deliverance of his people. A quick disclaimer before we dive into the book of Esther. You may be helped this morning. It's really up to you. But if I were you, I wouldn't try to keep up with me in the book of Esther because I'm not going to be referring to chapter and verse number because we're covering 10 chapters in a very short amount of time. So feel free to just, you can take some notes or you can just listen and then read the book of Esther later. Uh, we're just going to be going pretty quickly through the narrative, covering a lot of ground quickly. So hang on and listen to what God has to say to us this morning. So the book of Esther, without further ado, the book of Esther and three acts. Act one, which is the longest act, just a forewarning. Act one, danger, chapters one through five. The setting, it's fifth century BC. We're in the nation of Persia, modern day Iran, and there's a big party going on. And as often as, the, as is often the case when the alcohol flows without restriction, this party goes from rad to mad. And that's because the host of the party gets his feelings hurt. King Ahasuerus commands his beautiful queen, Vashti, to come out and strut her stuff in front of all the guests. She refuses, and we have the first conflict in the story. This all could have stopped, you know, just that kind of standard marital conflict. Oh, honey, I just, you're so beautiful. I wanted you to kind of stop by the party and let my friends say hi. Uh, you know, I love you, but no. That's not what happens. King Ahasuerus is furious that his wife Vashti defies him. Ahasuerus escalates things, and he calls in the wise men, the so-called wise men, to decide her fate. The wise men counsel Ahasuerus. They say, it's not just enough to punish Vashti, but all women must be put in their place in the kingdom. And so a decree is issued that not only disposes of Vashti, but makes every man the master of his home. That's chapter one. Life is tenuous in this kingdom. That's because the guy at the helm is pretty insecure. He's given to anger. He's drunk. He doesn't have the respect of his wife. And when she defies him, he doesn't know what to do. So he calls in the wise men, and the counsel they give ironically reveals the very thing that Ahasuerus would not want everybody to know, and that is who wears the pants in the capital, because it certainly isn't King Ahasuerus. Chapter 2, think The Bachelor, 5th century BC style. Winner gets to be queen, let's dive in. Listen as I read. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. That's significant, by the way, that lineage. We'll get to that. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when 
King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jehoiachin of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. Well, Esther is taken into the palace, and out of millions of women, she will be chosen as the next queen. Esther is the only character in this whole narrative, in all ten chapters, who we see two, she has two names. Um, and this foreshadows an upcoming identity crisis. Is she a Jew in exile, or is she basically Persian and she just happens to have Jewish ancestry? In other words, who is Esther going to identify with in this story? A foreign and pagan nation or God's people? As Esther is introduced, we are meant to feel her helplessness. She is not in control. She is taken into the king's harem. She is a means to the king's gratification. But unlike Queen Vashti, the king is pleased with Esther. He likes her. And this Jewish orphan becomes the queen of Persia. But Esther's new role is not a position of power and authority. We already, see, we already remember how things turned out for the last queen. Esther is an at-risk Jew in the belly of the beast. But Esther is not the only one in danger. King Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the entire empire, is also vulnerable. His own eunuchs plot his assassination. But as fate would have it, Mordecai, the Jew, learns of this plot and blows the whistle. Mordecai goes unrecognized at this time, but the deed is written in the annals of the king. One key plot element to note is that Esther keeps her Jewish identity hidden from the palace and the king. Mordecai told her, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. But that's not the only thing that is hidden from us so far. The narrator is actually hiding something from us, the reader. And that's the sovereign, unseen hand of God. God's name has not been mentioned so far in the first two chapters of Esther. And the word God, Lord, faith, or anything like that will not be mentioned in all ten chapters of the book of Esther. And yes, this book, Esther, has been in the Bible for thousands of years. The notable absence of God, I think, raises some questions for us today. You know, are these exiles on their own in Persia? Has God abandoned them? Has he forgotten his promises to his people? Because if he has, if he's forgotten his people, if he's abandoned them and turned them over to their sin, then life is a lot more dangerous than we could ever imagine. Speaking of danger, here comes the villain, chapter 3. And this is one of those villains that we all love to hate. Even his name, Haman, just sounds like a great villain. You know, uh, I live in Portland, and today, you know, there's a lot of strange-sounding names, <laughs> but I've never met a Haman. Haman is King Ahasuerus' number two, and just like the king, Haman gets his feelings hurt pretty easily. 
listen to what happens when Mordecai the Jew doesn't bow down to Haman. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Well, that escalated quickly. Haman makes the proposal to annihilate the Jews, men, women, children. They are to be slaughtered and plundered. Ahasuerus accepts because, you know, he never has a plan himself. He, do, he doesn't care about anything about, except for the next party and about himself. And the announcement of the upcoming genocide of the Jews is sent out to the kingdom. And then the final line of chapter 3 is just chilling. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Mordecai begs his cousin, Esther, to use her newfound influence. But Esther knows that to approach the king on her own initiative would likely mean her execution. Mordecai responds to Esther with this. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Why is Mordecai so confident in the face of such danger? He doesn't say, you know, I know God is going to save his people just as he has countless times before. He doesn't say God's name, but he doesn't have to. And it's at this point in the story that Esther becomes Queen Esther. She wakes up. She's no longer passive. Listen to her reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Well, As you might guess, Esther does not perish. The text tells her that she found favor in the king's eyes. He asks her, what is it, Queen Esther? And Esther requests a banquet for the king and for Haman. She doesn't come right out and say, Haman's trying to kill everybody, and it's partly your fault, king. No, she doesn't panic. She says to the king, hey, you want to come to a party with me? And the king says, My name is Ahasuerus, and I like to party. At the party, the king asks Esther, so what is it that you want? I'll give you anything, even if it's up to half my kingdom. Esther says, let's do it all again. Let's do this again tomorrow night, a banquet in your honor, have Haman there, and at that point, I'll present my request. You know, coming home from Esther's banquet, Haman must have been doing the Pharaoh Williams happy dance. You know, and then he gets the ultimate buzzkill. Mordecai the Jew. Listen to what Haman says to his wife and friends when he gets home. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. And I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, 
None of this satisfies me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, and he had the gallows constructed. Wow, what a guy, right? Killing all the Jews isn't enough. So he constructs a supersized gallows, which is just a symbol for his pride. The scene has been set. Persia is a dangerous place in the 5th century. We've met all the major players, good guys, bad guy, hilariously but also dangerously incompetent guy, the king. The tension is rising. Will the king hear Esther's requests? Will Haman hang Mordecai? Will the Jews be annihilated off the face of the earth? But perhaps, most importantly, where is God? This brings us to the second act of the story and to the climax. If this were a real play, this would be the time of intermission. We're like halfway through, but we won't. I don't want you to leave because you've got to hear the climax here in chapter 6. It's nighttime. After Esther's first banquet, party number two is the next day. The king can't sleep, maybe he had too much to drink, so he orders the palace journal to be read to him. Must have had thousands of entries, probably not a very exciting read, but as chance would have it, they come to the report about how Mordecai had blown the whistle on the assassination attempt, attempt against the king. The king is actually listening. He hasn't fallen asleep yet. And so he asks, well, what, what honor? And special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act. The king's personal attendants replied, well, no, nothing. Nothing has been done for him. You know, if we've learned anything about King Ahasuerus so far, it's he can't come up with any idea on his own. So he's like, uh, who's in the court? And who just happens to be in the court that morning but Haman? Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai in the gallows he had prepared for him. So you see where this is going. The irony just gets layered on thicker. Listen to how the king asks Haman for advice in this matter of honoring Mordecai. What should be done, this is what the king asks Haman, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and call out before him, This is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you have proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Poor Haman. What a series of unfortunate events for him. Even Haman's wife, Zeresh, realizes something spooky is going on. And Zeresh tells her husband, Haman, since Mordecai is Jewish, 
and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. Imagine your wife saying that to you. Uh, Before Haman can kind of really reflect on his wife's words, he's whisked away to banquet number two with Esther and the king. Esther gets the king married with wine, and Esther finally gets to her request of the king, spare my life and the life of my people, king. All right, let's just pause on the story real quick. We should note Esther's transformation from a passive virgin taken into the king's harem to the queen of Persia. You know, in chapter 4, we saw her courage. If I perish, I perish. In chapter 5, she puts on her royal robes and approaches the king. And here, in chapter 7 and 8, she plays the mighty king like a fiddle, and she literally brings the powerful and evil Haman to his knees. Unpause. Back to the story. Esther reveals to the king that her adversary and the enemy is the evil Haman, the enemy of all the Jews. And you'll enjoy reading later how Haman ends up on his own gallows that he built for Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai becomes the new number two to King Ahasuerus in Haman's place, and he writes a new edict for the king. Remember, this king can't do anything himself, so Mordecai writes this edict. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Well, how the tables have turned. The punishment meant for the Jews falls on their enemies instead. The good guys win, and we all like a happy ending. But if you were paying close attention... And if you were to read on into chapter 9, it's actually a little disturbing, especially for our modern ears. We're like, wait, what was that part about being allowed to kill women and children? That doesn't seem right. Is Esther going into overkill? Is Mordecai's edict a little bit vindictive? Not only that, but Esther and Mordecai, if you look at the story closely, are they really biblical heroes? They're not commended for their faith anywhere in this book, nor anywhere else in all of the Bible. So what's going on? You know, they seem like a far cry from Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Persia just a generation before. I think many of these difficult questions are resolved when we consider that this story isn't merely about God's salvation, God's salvation of his people in this story of Esther and Mordecai, but Esther and Mordecai are just part of a larger tapestry that stretches back to the beginning and points to the end. Let me explain. The narrator goes out of his way several times to tell us Haman is from the line of King Agag, the Amalekite. Who were the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites were Israel's ancient enemy, going all the way back to Sinai. And in 1 Samuel 15, God gives the order to King Saul to annihilate them because the Amalekites had grown so wicked. Saul was to take no prisoners and no plunder, but Saul disobeys. Do you know the story from 1 Samuel? He spares Agag, the king, and he takes plunder. So what does the story about Saul and the Amalekites have to do with, that happened generations ago, have to do with this story in the book of Esther? Well, 
as we learn, as I read earlier, Mordecai is a descendant of who? King Saul. So if we zoom out, we see that Saul's greater son, Mordecai, fulfills what Saul should have done thousands of years ago by bringing Agag's wicked descendant, Haman, to a just end, snuffing out evil. And while Mordecai's edict tells the Jews they can plunder their enemies, we learn in Esther 9 that the Jews do not plunder them. So do you see what's going on here? This is not just God's hand working in one generation and in one story. No, all the stories are connected. The inconspicuous detail that the Jews didn't plunder their Persian enemies, even when Mordecai's edict said they could, points to God fulfilling his purposes no matter what. God is showing us in this book that he will finish what he intends to accomplish despite the weakness and disobedience of humanity. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this story stretches all the way back to the beginning. Haman clearly represents the evil serpent from Genesis, trying to snuff out the seed of the woman, God's chosen people. But God uses a Jewish woman in exile to flip flip the script. God hadn't forgotten his promise to send a serpent crusher to end the reign of sin and death. Esther is just another story in a long line of stories of women of faith engaged in a battle against the serpent. God will use what is weak and despised in this world to work out his sovereign purposes. The worst evil has no match for God's sovereign plan. And that brings us to our third and final act and conclusion. Laughter. Listen as I read. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews and all the king of Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. This book was written so that God's people would remember how God flipped the script on his enemies. And over 2,500 years later, out here in Portland, Oregon, the ends of the earth, we remember. Jews remember this at the holiday of Purim. Still, every year around March 9 and 10, they celebrate by feasting, by drinking, by exchanging gifts, and actually dressing up in ridiculous costumes. They read the book of Esther in synagogues, as I mentioned, with much laughter and noise. They give kids little rattles that they shake every time Haman's name is said. Now, I will say, for us, this book probably isn't our style of humor, <laughs> but when you're a people group that is always under threat from anti-Semitism and genocide, probably slapstick isn't your thing. It's a little bit of a darker humor, a sense of humor that revels in irony. We're meant to join in the laughter today. Not like we might laugh at an inappropriate joke or something trivial, but we're to laugh in confidence and faith. Today, the story of Esther calls us to laugh at trouble and danger. For just as God's people had their sorrow turned to rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday, so we know that this is God's pattern with his people. We are meant to laugh at the inept King Ahasuerus. What a buffoon. We're meant to laugh 
at the evil Haman. He got hung on his own gallows. Most of all, we are meant to laugh and join in the laughter of the people or I'm sorry, that we are to laugh, join in the laughter of God himself. He really does have a sense of humor. Listen to what God laughs at from Psalm 2. I read this passage earlier. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You know, I don't, I don't know most of you. I don't know the particular trouble and danger that faces you today. I know for, for all of us, uh, the trouble might be the, the larger things in the world that are going on. You are discouraged by our culture becoming increasingly anti-Christian and intolerant towards religious belief. You're troubled by the division in our country and politics. You're, this pandemic alone is enough to make the most confident among us anxious. And I think all of us tend to worry about the children from time to time. Will they be safe? Will they turn back to the Lord? I think we, we can think individually. Will I always be alone? Will I have enough to make ends meet? Will I be a failure? Will I ever be respected at my work or in my home? Will God heal me or my loved one? You know, I could go on and on. Like I said, I don't know what troubles you today. But brothers and sisters, our confidence cannot be in our ability to control our circumstances. Our, our confidence cannot be in our ability to control our lives or the lives of people around us. Our confidence can't be that the cancer diagnosis will just go away. But the story of Esther illustrates that even something like cancer is in the hands of our good storyteller. The director of your story hasn't gone on lunch break only to come back and find your life a mess. No, every single minor detail of your life is directed by a wise and good father. As we learn in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Friends, what we've been considering this morning is what is called the doctrine of providence. Providence, as my fellow elder at Hinson Baptist Church and a Western Seminary professor, this is a little bit of a mouthful, but I think it's a great thing to meditate on. Providence is defined, according to Todd Miles, God plans and carries out his perfect will, as he alone knows is best over all that is in heaven and earth, and he does so without failure or defeat, for the glory of his name and the benefit of his children. God plans and carries out his perfect will, as he alone knows his best, over all that is in heaven and earth, and he does so without failure or defeat, for the glory of his name and the benefit of his children. You know, in Esther, we see that the playwright is present throughout, directing everything to its desired outcome. 
And as I said earlier, though, God's name is never mentioned in this book, but there's a reason for that. This isn't just a secular book that snuck its way into the biblical canon because it's such a great story. No, it's intentional that God, the main character and actor in the story, is never mentioned because that is how we experience life in a broken world, isn't it? We can't see God. We don't know what he's up to. We have a hard time making sense of the plot when we're right there in the middle of it. We can't see that everything will resolve in the end. But this little book argues that we should trust that God has a plan. And he has a goal. His plan is hard, but his goal is good. Haman rolled the dice, the pur. That's where we get the name of the holiday, Purim, to seek the wisdom of the gods in discerning which day the genocide of the Jews should fall. And 500 years later, after Esther, centurions would roll something like the pur to see who would get the garment of a preacher and healer known as the king of the Jews. The soldiers looked to chance, or maybe the gods, to see who would get that garment. But the very one hanging over them directed the outcome of that role. In fact, God's providence had directed the time, the characters, and the circumstances to this very moment in history. Psalm 22 even foresaw this seemingly insignificant detail. The psalmist writes, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This man, who hung not on a gallows, but on a Roman cross, appeared to be proof that God had abandoned his people, that he was absent. I'm sure that's how it felt to his disciples, to his mother, and even to the king of the Jews himself. Jesus' death was followed by great mourning, just as Mordecai had mourned when he learned the fate of the Jews. But little did the disciples and those who followed Jesus know that in just three days later, their mourning would turn to tears of joy, to laughter and rejoicing. Their fasting would turn to feasting. And that glorious day, the first day of the week, would not just be celebrated by believing Jews, but by the nations. Today, we remember Resurrection Day. It's what Purim was pointing to all along. It's Purim on steroids. Purim times 10,000. The story of Esther is the story of the gospel in miniature. It's your story and my story. If only we would turn from our pride and our wickedness. So don't be like Haman and King Ahasuerus in their pride and grasping for control, living for pleasure in this world in ignorance. Instead, friend, turn in faith and repentance to this king and worship at a higher throne today. He is the master storyteller, and he is bringing our story to a thrilling ending for those who are in Christ. Well, the Jews are saved in Esther so that the true king would come from the line of David and turn the tables on sin and death, who would bring great glory out of great evil. He did this so we might laugh, so that we might marvel 
and wonder at the irony of it all, how seemingly insignificant events change the course of history. If just one thing would have been a little bit different, maybe Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. If just one thing had gone differently in your life, maybe you wouldn't have been born to hear this best news that the world has to offer. And the remarkable thing about this story, the story of the gospel, is that it's true. It's unbelievably true. And this should make us laugh with joy, even as the tears of grief and loss stream down our face. Would you join me in prayer? Let me enjoy, let me invite the music team to come up here. And as we take a moment to reflect on what we've heard from God's word, let's go to our good father and sovereign king and ask him for help. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would turn our mourning into laughter today. Not a laughter that is ignoring our circumstances or saying fatalistically that it all doesn't matter in the end, but give us the courage to face our trouble. To take seriously the sin in our hearts and the brokenness all around us. To own up to the ways that we have wronged you, Father. That we have wronged others around us. How we have been proud and selfish. And then help us to take refuge in you. Help us to turn to you in trust and repentance and find hope in our King Jesus, who turns the tables on our sin and who will return in glory and make all wrongs right. Lord, we hope in that great day of your return, and we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand together with us as we...